It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Freddie. And I'm Chris. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss Nicola Sturgeon's resignation and you ask us, who will replace her? Nicola Sturgeon, Scotland's first minister and the SNP leader, is resigning after over eight years. And we're joined by our Scotland editor, Chris Deeran, to discuss why this has happened and its implications. Thanks so much for joining us, Chris, taking a break in between your many pieces that you're writing. (laughs) It's been a busy couple of days, that's for sure. (laughs) And actually, you've been writing for a while that her authority was waning and it was likely that she was on her way out. But were you surprised about the sort of nature and the timing of her departure. I was planning quite a relaxed day yesterday and that changed <laughs> whenever half nine the, the press conference was announced and it became a very unrelaxed day. I don't think anybody expected her to go on the timescale that, that she has. And my reading of it had been really that she'd been in power for an awfully long time and that like most people who've been in government that long, she'd kind of run out of road on policy. I think you could see some of the policy decisions she was taking were quite niche and the sort of bigger projects around health and education and the economy. She'd done really what she wanted to do on those, which wasn't much in my estimation, but it was hard to see what her vision would be for the next 10 years of Scotland. And that's not really to blame her for that. I think any government that's been in the SNP have been in since 2007. So inevitably your energies and your ideas start to wane. And on top of that, I guess as I think one maybe the, one of the first signs was Stephen Flynn, the MP at Westminster, who ousted Ian Blackford, who was an ally of Nicola Sturgeon. And uh, Flynn didn't ask permission from Sturgeon to challenge. He didn't consult her in what he was doing. He just went ahead and did it and won and secured the backing of enough MPs at Westminster. And those MPs have been unhappy for a while. I think they feel very far away from Edinburgh. They feel very secondary in terms of the decisions that have been taken in the SNP, a bit of an afterthought. So that that unhappiness brewed up and then when they had the chance for change, they took it. So that was the first sign perhaps that, that her authority was starting to go. And then of course we've had the de facto independence referendum plan where she wanted to use the next general election as a sort of effectively an independence referendum. And if the SNP and other pro-independence parties got more than 50% of the vote, she said she would begin separation negotiations with the British government. And that was clearly a crazy idea because the SNP, even at their height in, I think, 2015, only got 49% of the vote, which is Amazing. 50% is another challenge, especially this far on from that moment where their fortunes haven't been quite as bright since. And also telling people 
they had to vote on a single issue going into an election is a very strange way to approach it. The opposition parties wouldn't play ball. And even if they did get over 50%, the British government, I think, would be unlikely to take that as a mandate. And if they didn't get 50%, then the British government would have it both ways and say, you failed in your referendum. So that's that off the off the page for a long time to come. So it was a really strange idea. And I think mm. you could see it wasn't just people like me saying that. A lot of people within the SNP were unhappy with the idea. A lot of the MPs at Westminster who stood to lose their seats if it went wrong were unhappy. And even I think last week, Stuart MacDonald, who's the MP, former defence spokesman for the SNP, who's been a very close ally of Sturgeon, published a pamphlet explaining why it was a bad idea and that it might set the independence cause back by years. So it was pretty clear that was unpopular. She'd called a conference, special conference for next month where the members were going to decide whether to go for the de facto referendum or whether they wanted another strategy. I think the fact that she felt she had to call that conference showed that there was maybe again a weakening in her authority. I don't think she'd have felt the need to call uh, a conference five years ago, say. She'd said, this is what I want to do and expected the party to fall into line. And then inevitably, the big story recently has been the gender reform proposals, which have really gone off a bit like a, a mine. She pursued these to quite a radical position from the off, went after them, didn't really consult or be seen to be listening to the people on the other side of the argument, a lot of the gender critical feminists, and secured support from enough of the other parties to get it through Parliament. It was then obviously blocked by the Westminster government on the basis it would interfere with UK equalities law. And then on top of that, the public opinion polls show that the voters are just not in favour. So she found herself on the wrong side of the public argument on gender. She also found herself on the wrong side of the argument on the de facto referendum, which wasn't popular with the public. And that's a very uncomfortable place for her to be. She'd be very careful to keep herself, obviously wanting to maximise the independence vote. She'd be very careful to keep the Scottish electorate online. So I think you put all these things together and it just felt very different. And it, it was hard to see what the point in her going on for too much longer was beyond just going on for the sake of going on, sort of Thatcher style. So yeah, it was a surprise yesterday, only really in the suddenness of it and the timing of it. But I guess that was one of the, maybe the few decisions she had left that she could take on her own steam, if you like. So there she went. There's a lot going on there, isn't there? And it's really interesting because it, the question is why she decided to go when she did. And I think a lot of the chat in Westminster, Freddie, you can talk a bit about this, has been that it's a vindication of Rishi Sunak's decision to block that gender recognition bill that the Scottish Parliament had passed. It was seen at the time as a bit of a risk because perhaps the Scottish public might think, who are you to block our, our legislation, even if uh, majority on side of this particular bill, but actually it does appear that the majority of the British public, including Scots, were in favour of that move. Yeah, this was one of the problems with the proposals. Many people criticised Rishi Sunak for stoking a culture war, and I think the government at the time were actually very careful to not try and frame yeah. the issue as a culture we war. We spoke about that, didn't Yeah, we? they yeah. sent out the Scottish Secretary, Alistair Jack, and he tried to do quite a sombre constitutional argument about why they were blocking the bill. And then I think that has really impacted Sturgeon's approval ratings. You can see we had a chart in Monaco this morning where her approval ratings did come down quite significantly from December. And I think once we put this in the broader perspective of her being a formidable politician who's won six elections since she came in 2014, I mean, this is someone who is election winning machine. And I think that's why you've had some elation from a Scottish Labour and elsewhere. Rachel wrote a piece on this reporting on the reaction within Scottish Labour recently that has been so positive. Now the question is, and I think Sturgeon raised this in her speech yesterday, which is fascinating. It was quite long. It went off <laughs> for a while, <laughs> but it contains so much and lots of insight into why she went and what she wanted to do. 
Chris, you wrote two brilliant pieces yesterday, which everyone should go and read on the speech and what it meant. But one of the key things for me was that she recognised that the opinion of her within the country had been calcified to such an extent that she didn't think she had the ability, the room to reach out to people and convert them both to the SNP, but also the broader independence cause. And then she took that decision, I think, in part because she could foresee the track she was going down and foresee where her pollings were going to end up. And I think the other interesting thing on this is that she was probably thinking about the timings with the next general election coming up. Often you need, when you have a change of leader, you need them to have enough time to build public recognition, build their own platform to do well in the forthcoming election. We've seen that problem play out with Rishi Sunak as well. So I think that also came through in her speech. So it's really worth other people having, even if it is quite long, because there is so much in there about what she thought she had achieved and the reasons that she went. Yeah. And actually, what's interesting is, Chris, you you have been a critic of hers, but you did write that actually her speech stood head and shoulders above the leaving speeches that we've seen from leaders down here, Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, for example. How did you compare her resignation speech to some of those speeches that we've seen? I did think it Yes, it was long. Some people thought it was too self-indulgent, but then if you don't get to be self-indulgent and a bit verbose in your resignation speech, when do you? I thought it brought out the best in her and explains perhaps some of the reasons that she's been so successful for so long. Sturgeon's strengths include that sense of empathy and maybe self-awareness and the idea that she's relatively straight for a politician. She, she tells things like they are. We saw that during the COVID lockdown era where she was doing these daily press conferences and it was a marked contrast with what was being done by Boris Johnson at the time, I think, in that she came out and she was very straightforward with people about the situation, very straightforward about the measures she was taking, explaining why, and even quite honest about the strain it was taking on her at times without wallowing in that or suggesting that she had it worse than anyone else. But as we know from her and other politicians, it was a hell of a job to get the country through that time. So I think she's always she's a great communicator, as we know. She's a very good public speaker. She does have that authenticity, I think, which, again, this speaks to her longevity. She feels to Scots, and even if you dislike her and dislike her policies, she looks and sounds like she comes from the broad mass of the Scottish people. It's not a sort of old Etonian born to rule coming in to tell you how things are going to be. It's just not been like that. And I think another example of that would be Ruth Davidson when she was leader of the Scottish Tories, who took them to levels that no one thought they would get to. Again, Ruth was someone who generally came from the broad mass of the population. So I think the projection of a kind of ordinary Scot in the big job and doing it relatively well has helped her along. But obviously, the other side of things and probably what what's helped and worked with that is the fact that she's kept independence right at the front and centre throughout her entire first ministership as the main issue that the country faces. She's run out the barricades again and again in terms of winning a referendum. And because almost half the population of Scotland are in favour of independence and would prioritise that, I guess, over many of the other policy areas. By keeping it in the headline, she's kept her vote up because it's always that it's just about to come, it's just about to be a referendum, one more heave and we're there. It all worked very well for her, probably until now, when it becomes clear that one more heave isn't going to do it and that her popularity, as you said, Freddie, and the popularity of her party and the popularity of independence have all taken a nosedive in the past few weeks, if not months, due to the decisions she's taken, both on gender and the de facto referendum. So she could probably see it was going to be quite hard for her to come back from that because people had already made their minds up 
on her. Also because it was kind of her fault because she'd done things that people just didn't agree with. It's understandable that at that point she'd think my best years are probably behind me. If she was feeling the personal strain anyway, which I think is probably true, she talked about the sort of human being of Nicola Sturgeon, then that would be another good reason. And she said there were a sort of complex variety of reasons that she'd been mulling over for weeks. So mm. you can understand why she's done it now. And you could, but you can also understand why she's been so successful for so long. Chris, we've spoken a lot on this podcast about the state of public services in Scotland, the NHS and schools in particular. But I want to ask you a little bit about Nicola Sturgeon's legacy and whether or not she has created any positive change in Scotland. The SNP often talk about creating a fairer Scotland and they have made changes to, to the taxation and benefit system to make it more progressive than perhaps it is in England and Wales. And you've written yourself that perhaps she's had some success in gradually peeling Scotland away from the Anglo-Saxon neoliberal model towards a more Nordic social demographic one. That's certainly been the intention for obvious reasons. They want Scotland to feel less British, less linked to England and maybe more linked to the independent country countries that the SNP aspire Scotland to be like. I think if you were weighing her achievements, and some people might like these as achievements, others might not, but you would look at things like uh, the Scottish Child Payment, which was a benefit once Holyrood took more control over benefits, a benefit that's paid to poorer families to, to support children. I think she did things like, for example, linking up with New Zealand and Norway to try and establish a measure of general well-being and put that at the heart of policy decisions. So you would not just measure the impact on economic growth, but the measure mm. on national well-being as well. I think they got particularly far with that. And there's a number of other things. She, I think she does view herself as a progressive and she has sought progressive ends, particularly to help vulnerable communities that she probably saw her as representing as First Minister. I remember talking to her about the priorities that she'd taken, and we talked about how the business community in Scotland has felt quite neglected by the Sturgeon administration. She said those have been very strong voices for a long time. It's time for other voices to be heard. And I think maybe you can see in some of her failures as well as her successes where she's coming from. So there was the named person's plan which was going to give every child in Scotland a named person who would keep an eye on them in essence and if there was any sign that they were having difficulties at home or whatever would be able to involve the authorities. Now there was a big backlash against that because perfectly happy families didn't didn't particularly like the idea of having a named person poking into their business and in the end the Supreme Court, the European Court wouldn't let it go ahead. Even the trans stuff I think it came from a place of genuinely wanting to help trans people and make their lives a little bit easier but I think the the delivery of it left obviously left a huge amount to be desired and uh, the taxation system, better off people in Scotland are asked to pay a bit more, poorer people in Scotland are asked to pay a bit less. There's an argument about that as well, how different can you make it before the better off people in Scotland and aren't that many of them that are paying that top rate. I think it's about 10,000, 15,000 of them. We'll brought it down a little bit in the last budget to try and capture more people. Some of them can just move their, their income <laughs> to England or whatever if they feel that it's getting too onerous. So that was a, a balance that she had to strike as well. But in all of that, you can see where she's coming from as a left of centre, progressive politics. Maybe her real failure in a lot of that was in the delivery rather than the, the idea in the first place. And that mm. takes us back to areas like education and health and probably the economy more broadly, where I certainly feel that those were neglected, certainly as areas for reform and modernisation, partly because they're very difficult things to reform and modernise. And to do that, as we've seen down south and in other countries, you often have to take on some of the vested interests in these public services. And if you want to win an independence referendum, you don't really want to follow it with teachers or doctors because you're making their lives different or a bit harder or asking more or different things of them. And so my instinct is that that's largely why those things were left unreformed, which leaves a big job for her 
successor when it comes if they choose to seize that thistle. Yeah, so I think the, the, there isn't a huge amount of achievement on maybe what you'd regard as the main central responsibilities of the Scottish government, of a devolved government, uh, but around the edges in those kind of niche areas and perhaps towards the more vulnerable parts of the community, I think she has tried to make a difference and probably made a difference to some of those people. Depending on your politics, you'll either think that was all worthwhile or that the neglect of the mainstream has been a big problem and leaves Scotland in her wake with some pretty big challenges to address now. Mm. And let's move on to the political implications, because Freddie, like you said, in Rachel Wimouth, our deputy political editor's piece, Scottish Labour, but also the National Labour Party seem to think that they're the main beneficiaries of this development. And actually, you know, I can really imagine how they might be relieved that it takes away the opportunity from the Tories in the next general election to put those posters up like they did in 2015 with Ed Miliband in Alex mm-hmm. Salmon's pocket, Keir Starmer in Nicola Sturgeon's pocket, probably would have been quite evocative advertising. Mm-hmm. That opportunity is gone now because whoever succeeds her and we'll talk about that in the second half of the podcast is unlikely to have the same stature and name recognition by the time of the next general election do you think labor is right to feel quite hopeful about this yeah, I don't think we should overstate how badly the SNP are doing at the moment. And we've got to remember they're still around 40% yeah. in the polls. Labour have been making quite a lot of progress recently, but much of that is to do with the national collapse in support for the Conservatives. You can see quite a direct swing from Tory voters to Labour voters in Scotland. But I do think, as we said earlier, Sturgeon was such a, a prominent figure. And as she mentioned in her speech, she almost crowded out other politicians in Scotland. Mm-hmm. I think what you might see is when her successor comes in, people like Anna Sawar and other figures within Scottish politics do get a little bit more limelight because she did take up so much of the attention beforehand. And I think the other thing to mention is how key Scotland is to Labour's broader national strategy. Yeah. You've got to remember back in 2015 when Labour lost so many seats, I think it was about 40 seats in in Scotland, that was completely detrimental to their figures in the House of Commons. And that was the key story then. I think people often forget. Having said that, I remember interviewing Jack Straw two years ago, I think, and he was his main thing he said at the end of the interview was just absolutely furious for Ed Miliband for losing those seats in Scotland, but so key yeah. to Labour's success more broadly. So if they can recover the current numbers being bandied around 10 to 20, 15 seats, yeah. That would be vital, crucial to Keir Starmer being able to achieve a majority over minority government if he does win the next election. So as we discussed with the Lib Dems in our Lib Dem podcast a couple of weeks ago, these smaller parties are important in themselves because they're in government or they're in opposition, but they're also important in how they affect the arithmetic for the next general election. And how will the Tories be feeling? Presumably they think this may be good news for the union if bad news for them electorally. Yeah, potentially. They're in such a bad place at the moment. I think there will be some initially within Sunak's team will go, aha, look what we did. We managed to get yeah. rid of this thorn in our side, Nicola Sturgeon, through our blocking of the gender reform proposals. But I think more broadly, they're going to have to wait and see how it plays out. As you said, we're going to discuss who's going to succeed her, but that'll be essential in how they think about things and how they try and recover because they are they're doing really badly in Scotland at the moment yeah. and they need to be able to think about their new strategy. Is Rishi Sunak able to convince and compel voters in Scotland to come back to them. You've got to remember as well that Boris Johnson was such an unattractive figure yeah. in Scotland that his absence is a benefit for them and given gives them a partial clean slate to start again. Yeah, and it's interesting that there has been polling that shows a majority of Scots actually supported Sunak's decision on mm-hmm. the gender recognition bill, which you can't imagine that same support for something so provocative like that if Boris Johnson had done it. Chris, what's been the response among opposition parties in Scotland to this? I was just going to point 
point out actually about the majority of Scots in favour of NAC blocking the bill. 31% of SNP supporters were in favour of the, right. the British government <laughs> yeah. blocking the bill, which is nuts, really. It maybe tells you something about how far wrong the Scottish government had gone. Labour are fascinating because Labour are realistically the only party that can hope to replace the SNP in government in Scotland. I think they're still a long way off that. But since Anna Sarwar came in, there's certainly been more energy about them and maybe more of a drive to start eating into that SNP lead. I remember speaking to a Scottish Shadow Cabinet member probably towards the end of last year who was very upbeat because he thought they could win maybe 10 to 12 seats at the next general election, specifically across the central belt, Fife, Glasgow, the west of Scotland, where you know not only are those the key seats that the SNP took from Labour to, to establish their dominance, Westminster for, among Scottish seats, but the momentum for Labour of winning those seats back, the heartlands where actually the Labour Party came from in the first place, that's a working class Scottishness, would be a huge victory for Labour if they could take them back. I then spoke to the same person at the start of this week before Sturgeon resigned, and again he was very upbeat and he said, we actually think we're going to get as many as 15 seats because we think we might do quite well in the northeast of Scotland now where they're taking on, I guess, the Tories, as Freddie said, that vote is not going to go well for them in the general election in Scotland. But also maybe some of the SNP Labour marginals are coming into play as the support for the SNP's come down in the polls, support for independence has come down in the polls. And now post-surgeon's resignation, you're suddenly talking about 20 seats or people. some people in posters are talking about 20 seats. That would be huge because it would take Labour within not or not too far from the number of seats the SNP would retain. It would make it more of an even fight. And what it would do, which is probably more important than certainly up here than what it provides to Keir Starmer, is that going into the 2026 devolved election, Labour are very keen on a message that after so many years, 12 years of Tory Westminster versus SNP Holyrood, where they've just been butting heads the whole time and it's been grievance yeah. politics and frustrating one side and the inability to really get along, what you can then do is send a message to voters that if you have a Labour government at Holyrood and a Labour government at Westminster, they can work together, they can achieve more for both countries. And that's very much the plan that they're working to at the moment, is that will be their message if they do well in 2024, going into 2026. So they're talking across the border about how they will maximise that potential at the moment. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Weymouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. Us. 
Brilliant. <laughs> so our question is very, a very simple one. Who will replace Nicola Sturgeon? Before we go into the runners and riders, I think it's really interesting because she sort of represents the end of that generation who forged their sort of nationalist credentials in a time of adversity. And now whoever takes over is going to have to be part of that new generation who actually has to rule a devolved country and get to grips with some of those public services that we were talking about. So it will represent a complete shift, I think, in the kind of leadership that the SNP has. Is that fair to say, Chris, or will they try and have Nicola Sturgeon 2.0? It depends on who they select because they have options now in, in terms of the age of the leader, the generation of the leader, which way the leader might lean in terms of fundamentalism versus gradualism. And I don't think it's clear yet which way they're likely to go. It was too early to say. We can all remember what happened in the contest between Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, which is that the membership chose the option that tickled their bellies and don't know you know, the makeup of the SNP membership who will ultimately make the choice whether someone who promises more rushes at the barricades, a more urgent demand for independence might actually be what they want rather than someone who will perhaps reconsider the nature of the SNP and government, the nature of the independence campaign and think that perhaps... You know, that Salmon Sturgeon generation that you talked about, Anish, that they've, they've had their goal, they've maxed out at a bit under 50% and that how f- much further will the politics of grievance, the politics of shouting at Westminster, the politics of trying to make Scotland look and feel different from England when actually small-c conservative Scotland, the middle bit, is not all that different from small-c conservative England, it's the middle England bit. So those are decisions that will need to be taken and they'll be taken by people who are members of the SNP and the reason people are members of the SNP is that they want independence. That's why people join, it's not because of their education policy or their health policy or really their trans policy. So it's quite hard to predict it at the moment. There are some interesting contenders and we can talk about some of them, but from my perspective, there needs to be a generational shift. They've been in government for the best part of 16 years. They've done a lot of things they want to do. They've had a referendum. They've spent the last eight years trying desperately to have another referendum. Scottish people aren't against having a referendum, but they don't want one now. There's always a sort of three to five year horizon when the pollsters ask them when they'd like to see a referendum. And it feels a bit like a break glass in the emergency sort of approach mm-hmm. among a lot of voters that if things went too crazy at Westminster or they just keep it in their back pocket, they'd have that option. But most people don't want a referendum tomorrow. They didn't want one on whenever it was, October the 19th or whatever it was, the day that Sturgeon had set for a second referendum. I think they need to rediscover their patience, their strategic patience, which was one of the big reasons behind the SNP's success over the last 20, 30 years, really, since Alex Salmon first became leader in 1990. And I think this is a bit like that moment because Salmon transformed the SNP at that point from a bit of a ragtag into a quite clearly defined social democratic pro-European project. I think we're now at the stage where there needs to be a, a, a similar kind of rethink, not to necessarily move away from that, but to think about a new approach to securing independence, how you win over that bit of middle Scotland, because shouting at them and trying to scare them into voting for independence clearly isn't going to work, or it would have worked by now post-Brexit and after 12, 13 years of increasingly radical Tory governments. So, Freddie, take us through some of the names, because you and Zoe wrote a list of runners and riders, which listeners can read on our website. Yeah, so it's worth noting that this changes. We put Stephen Flynn up there, one of the Westminster, the Westminster leader, the newly crowned Westminster leader. And I think Sturgeon's resignation probably came a little bit too early for him. He was probably kicking himself. (laughs) (laughs) If it was further down the line, maybe he would be able to shuffle up to Scotland and try and and get that job. But he's, for instance, he's ruled himself out for the moment. Yeah, I did wonder if it was a a bit come and get me if you need me sort of thing. Rachel interviewed him, I think, at the start of the year, which is definitely worth reading. He says, if 
any SNP politician who wants to be in Scotland's parliament, which is in Edinburgh, is not in Westminster. So his priorities are quite clear and his direction of travel, I think, is yeah. quite clear. But no, not him for now. Kate Forbes, one of the finance secretary who has been on maternity leave for the past few months. Chris, we were speaking about this before we came on, but she has quite socially conservative views. She's quite religious. She managed, though, to avoid the gender self-ID, the gender reform debate because she was on maternity leave, which we fairly timed. <laughs> Otherwise, she may, you might have gone into, there might have been some conflict between her and Sturgeon, which ultimately may have ended up with her resignation. But she, Chris, you can speak more eloquently about her. You've written quite a lot about her. And then, I mean, the list is huge, I must say. I think in part because there isn't a clear successor. We've got to remember back in 2014 when stepped down, he called Sturgeon his apprentice and there was a coronation that basically led to her being the leader, which also means that we haven't actually had a leadership election, I think, until the last time was 2004. So this is new territory. Other names, Angus Robertson, former Westminster leader John Sweeney was also a former leader but also the deputy first leader at the moment Keith Brown deputy leader of the party but not deputy first leader right <clears throat> Hoover missed Chris let me check my own list uh, Hamza yeah. Yusuf would be the other name that I'd yes, probably throw in yep. there who is the currently the health secretary in Scotland although his fortunes have taken a bit of a dive along with the Scottish NHS and recent months. But yeah, I know that he has always been ambitious and has been tipped as a potential future leader. Mm. Mm. Who also introduced the controversial hate crime bill did, when he, he was did. Justice Secretary. So his, great profile have, no, his profile seems to is increase with the increasing amount of controversy that surrounded him. Yeah. yeah. And Chris, you profiled Kate Forbes for us fairly recently. Can you tell us a bit about her and her prospects as a potential leader? Yeah, she's absolutely... Fascinating. She's only just turned 33, so she's young. But then there has been a sort of, I guess, a record recently of youngish women taking over countries, whether it's New Zealand or Finland and others as well. So that might not count against her. She's a wee free, which is quite a fundamentalist Protestant religion, which is reflected, I think, in some of her social conservatism. And I think that the SNP does see itself as a progressive party, and that might be something that she would have to get over. We all saw what happened to Tim Farron when he was leading the Lib Dems, and that kind of mm. brought him down in a sense. I think Kate Forbes has been aware of that, and she's tried to speak about her religious views quite openly over the last couple of years, maybe to give them an airing and defang them slightly. I think she has also been of the opinion that in some of these areas, some of them are reserved enemies, such as abortion, but in others, she would be more likely to reflect the country's general view than maybe her, what her own religion would dictate. I think what's impressed people about her is that at such a young age, and I know that Sturgeon rated her very highly as a potential successor, is that she has an incredible grasp of detail. So she's been running the economy and finance department for the past couple of years and has been really on top of her brief, has brought some of the cabinet ministers around her who are older and more experienced to, to heal asking them for cuts in their budgets because obviously money's been tighter and she's tried to save the Scottish government money around the place. She shows the signs of being a bit more cautious with the taxpayers' money, which hasn't really been something the SNP have been particularly bothered about up till now. I think she's very open to ideas. She is, I guess, not afraid of conversations about wealth creation, not because she's a right winger, but because if you want to properly fund public services, you need the tax revenues coming in. And the best way to do that is to have a thriving private sector that will pay those tax revenues. I would probably say if she wasn't in the SNP, she'd sit relatively comfortably in the mainstream of the Labour Party. But I think if you're young and ambitious in Scotland, though we have been in recent years, there'd be no point joining the Labour Party. You join the SNP because that's the route to power. We'll see what happens there. It may be a too big an ask for the SNP membership, those small C conservative reasons that we talked about. But my view is that she would be 
the most competent and she's quite likable, quite self-deprecating. She is obviously a different generation from Sturgeon and Salmon. I think she's got the ability to think for herself. And so when we're talking about rethinking the purpose of the SNP in government, rethinking the case for independence, I think she is the best of that generation. There are some other good people around in that generation, but she from the ones I know certainly is the outstanding candidate, has the intellectual smarts and the character to, to take the party down that, that route. That said, if I'm backing her, then she's probably doomed. I'm not sure. Yes, <laughs> he would listen to for the future the direction. Yeah, yeah. But there are, there are others. So Angus Robertson, as you said, Freddie, former leader at Westminster, very experienced, another very intelligent person. Angus has been around for a long time, and I don't know if that will count for him or against him. He does, and I think even his closest friends would admit that he can come across as a bit pompous from time to time. He's a man who likes to get on his back legs and talk to the room. But again, that's maybe not necessarily a bad thing. Keith Brown is often tipped, but he would be maybe like Swinney, seen as a sort of safe pair of hands. He's a bit older, probably a bit closer to the Sturgeon generation. Would he have the sort of fire and the, I guess, the, the desire to make the changes that, that people like me think are needed. But as I said earlier, you know, the SNP membership may not want that stuff. They might want to keep going, keep running at the barricades. So we'll see it. It's very hard to predict. And, mm. and, you know, talking about maybe the next few years and what the consequences of Sturgeon going will be for the SNP in the polls and the independence movement and its public support for independence is probably quite an important part of that conversation as well. Losing Sturgeon is, it leaves a very big hole. She was as popular with some as she was unpopular with others. Anyone who comes in now will not have her profile. That could be a bad thing for the independence movement, and the, certainly amongst the general public who will think we're now at the tail end of an SNP government where they're giving us first ministers that we haven't heard of compared to Salmond and Sturgeon. Or the, the alternative is it could be a real burst of energy and a fresh face, and if they get the right person, there's public approval, they get a nice bounce coming out of it, they make a compelling argument for a change in strategy, they impress people by some of the hard decisions they take in government. It could go either way at the moment. People will have their views on that, but I'm um, kind of careful about making predictions at this stage, largely because all predictions have been wrong in politics since the Brexit vote really and Trump better to yeah. hold your fire. And you never know who the membership will choose. Tim Bale, the academic who's an expert in party membership, he's just released what everything he knows about the SNP membership and they are, but they skew very left wing or at least relatively left wing. So it could be that Kate Forbes might just be too much for them to swallow. But we'll see. We'll be following it on this podcast. Thanks so much for coming on, Chris. It was great to have you. You're welcome. And before we go, we've made it easier for subscribers to The New Statesman to listen to an ad-free version of the podcast. They are now available in the New Statesman app, including all our previous episodes. You'll also find the other podcasts from The New Statesman, including World Review and Audio Long Reads, along with all of our award-winning journalism available on the go. Just search for The New Statesman app in the App Store or Play Store, or follow the link in the show notes. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and my colleagues, Freddie Hayward and Chris Deeran. We're produced by Adrian Bradley, and our music is not Devil with the Devil. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to subscribe. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Yeah. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.